0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, really appreciate the groups hanging in the summertime. Week seven of our eight-week class, studying Sila, moral integrity, and more particularly, the precepts that we chanted earlier and uh, maybe before looking more closely at wise speech, undertaking the training to refrain from false speech and to refrain from slanderous speech, speech that's used as a weapon, harsh speech where we're in a way intoxicated with the power that we have with speech, both literally like a loud voice, but also just, you know, swear words too have a kind of power where we're sort of power tripping with our words and undertaking the training to refrain from even idle speech, speech that's just there to fill space. But um, one of the articles I put in the email today, and I mentioned it last week briefly, but the healing power of the precepts, and I, I think it's really useful, you know, one way or or another. Whether it's mostly through the Buddhist teachings and practices, or possibly through some of the Western modalities, we human beings we need a healthy self-esteem. We need to feel good about ourselves, and I mentioned that briefly at the end of the sit. I mean, even when we do have a quote-unquote good set, and the mind, body, touch and real peacefulness and calm, one of the after is, like, we trust our life, like, oh, this life, this body, mind, is capable of feeling really good. So I can't be all bad. And the sila practice, moral integrity is similar, but we have to, it's like uh, noticing the absence of remorse. It takes a little training. Like for sure if I did something stupid today and it's really hanging in there, I feel it, you know, my body, my heart, that yucky feeling of remorse, oh, I did that, I said that. But do we notice when it's not there? Like Thich Nhat Hanh calls these noticing the non Mm toothaches You know, just that lightness. Because there are a lot of people who have made serious mistakes in their life and feel badly about them. And they might not even be conscious, consciously aware that they feel badly. But that doesn't mean it isn't a real burden psychically in their lives. And then when we're that way, it's like we want to keep busy, keep doing stuff, because when things are quieter, we realize what it feels like to be the person who did that thing or said that thing or thought that thing, because that's where the continue, whatever that action done, with intention, karma, right? That's the definition of karma. A thought, word, or action, deed, done with intention deliberately, then that leaves an impression in our heart. So right now I'm the person who did all that stuff prior to this moment. This heart, this mind is the continuation a lawful unfolding of that. So to whatever degree those thoughts and words and actions had uh, some integrity around non-harming, then what this continuation is right now is the lightness of not being haunted by unskillful actions. And the Buddha talks about these as... uh, three medicines, right, the path has three medicines, sila, samadhi, panya, some of you know these Pali words, sila, hopefully you know, moral integrity, moral sensitivity, samadhi is that coming together, that stabilization and unification of the energies of the mind, or you could even say the harmonizing of the heart and mind, the mind, heart, isn't working against itself, isn't in conflict with anything. It gets badly, samadhi gets badly translated as concentration, right, because normally when we, in English, hear that word concentration, we think about focusing our attention on one thing, and that can be a a support, a skillful means for samadhi, but it isn't really, focusing really is not samadhi. It's just a natural coming together, of the heart and mind. It isn't fragmented. So that's a medicine. And then there's the medicine of wisdom, of view and understanding that's in line with the way things are, as opposed to a view that's not in line, in alignment with the way things are. And those are the three medicines. So this little passage from one of the texts, whatever medicines are found in the world, many and varied, none are equal to the Dhamma. Drink of this, practitioners, and having drunk the medicine of the Dhamma, you will be untouched by age and death. Having practiced, you will be healed by ceasing to cling. So... The summer, we're getting to know, hopefully, the medicine, the healing medicine, stabilizing medicine, liberating medicine of sila, and it's important that even if you're a morally upstanding human being, which, you know, probably is generally relatively true for most of us, most of the time, right? It doesn't, the important thing is, uh, you know, that what really gets in the way of all three of these medicines is a kind of complacency, oh I understand the Buddhist view of emptiness, so I got wisdom, oh I know that calm, that stability of the mind is really good, I've tasted that, so I got that, you know, I don't steal and I don't hit. I got that, and then we we sort of feel like, what do I do now? And the important thing is, with our imagination, is never imagine that we're done. Imagine there's more to do with sila, and it's like, good medicine, so of course I want to do more. There's more to do with samadhi. What's good medicine? Of course I want to do more. There's more to do with wisdom. We have every reason to want to do more, to go deeper, more subtle, to look places, to bring the, this medicine to places in our lives where we haven't brought it yet. Especially true with sila. And tonight we'll talk you know, mostly about wise speech. The fourth precept, Let me just read this. This is the article, The he- Healing Power of the Precepts, and I uh, have the link in the email that you got today. And this is uh, Ajahn Tanisaro, uh, a Buddhist monk, a Western Buddhist monk who's the abbot of Wat Metta, a Buddhist monastery outside of San Diego. He's quite an amazing scholar and teacher, He writes here in this article, There is a tendency in the West to dismiss the five precepts as Sunday school rules bound to an old cultural norms that no longer apply to our modern society. But this misses the role that the Buddha intended for them. They are part of a course of therapy for wounded hearts. In particular, they are aimed at curing two ailments that underlie low self-esteem. Regret and denial. When our actions don't measure up to certain standards of behavior, we either one, regret our actions, or two, engage in one of two kinds of denial. Measurements, um, either one, uh, measurements that are really valid. Oh, I'm sorry. A, denying that our actions did in fact happen or denying that the standards of measurement are valid right those are the two kinds of denial and then he writes these reactions are like wounds in the mind regret is an open wound tender to to the touch while denial is like a hardened twisted scar tissue around a tender spot when the mind is wounded in these ways it can't settle down comfortably in the present for it finds itself resting on raw, exposed flesh, or calcified knots, pretty descriptive. Even when it's forced to stay present, it's there only in a uh, a tensed, contorted, and partial way. And so the insights it gains tend to be contorted and partial as well. Only if the mind is free of wounds and scars Can it be expected to settle down comfortably and freely in the present and to give rise to undistorted undistorted discernment? Yeah, so we think about sila as healing some of the most obvious wounds. And as he's mentioning, we notice when it's just hard, to be present, just hard to sit still, for example. Like, what's that about? What's my heart afraid of feeling? Because generally, as Joseph Goldstein used to say a lot, and I think he was quoting some, I forget where it comes from, if it's in the suttas or not, but it's just a underlying principle in the Dharma. Movement masks suffering. Movement, masks, suffering. So that's both in terms of the movement of thought, covers up, suffering that we don't want to feel, the movement of the body. You know, even we get that sense sometimes when we're around somebody who's just talking a lot. And sometimes it's not always the case, of course, but we can get, especially if we know the person well, we might intuit like, oh, they're hurting, and they don't want to feel that they're hurting. So they're going to talk about this and they're going to talk about that. And none of that is really that important even to them, but they need to fill the space up to keep from feeling what's there to feel. And so that's why, you know, I think I mentioned this somewhat funny quote from Ajahn Chah when some of the Thai people, he was Thai, Some of the Thai people asked him, once more and more Westerners were going to Thailand to practice with Ajahn Chah, why aren't you talking a lot about sila? Isn't it true that no one's going to progress in their Dharma practice in the development of wisdom and and liberating insight without developing sila? And Ajahn Chah reportedly said, it's true, they're not going to progress. But I'd rather them figure that out for themselves, right? That I can't sit. I can't stand to sit still. I can't stand to go off and spend a weekend by myself or have a quiet day without getting on the phone or getting on the internet. or I just don't want to be with myself. I don't want to be with the feeling that's there when I'm not filling the space up. Okay, well that should make us interesting, okay, what kind of amends need to be made? That's one of the, there's just so much wisdom that God woven into the 12-step movement that has been so helpful for people over the years. And uh, one of them is this moral inventory, like getting real about what is there. Oh yeah that there's some unfinished business there. And we have to feel in and we have to discern and 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 it's like meeting that pain brings that integrity to these five precepts, these five trainings. I really do want to undertake the training not to cause harm because I know what it feels like to be haunted by because I've caused some harm. Right? I mean It would be really nice, and you can do this next week in your small group or with your Dharma friends, but imagine, you know, the hundred of us online and here in the room, if we took the time and we carefully, without judgment, confessed all of those memories in our life that make us flinch. I did that. (laughs) Right? And it would be so liberating and normalizing for us to do that with each other. All of the ways we caused harm in our sexual interactions, with our words, with our kids, with our family, with our parents, all the ways we caused harm. What do they call a new word now? Ghosting, right? Where you had a relationship with someone, and then you were done, but couldn't be bothered to tell the person it's over, right? And you just don't. Reach out to them, you know, connect with them because you don't know what that word means. I just learn that. <laughs> Try to stay up with the younger generations. But that, um, yeah, just that willingness to ventilate this world of morality, of, of karma, of what's, what impressions have been left left or left here in the heart reverberating in our hearts and to use those wounds to develop the integrity around these trainings, to not harm, to not take what hasn't been given, to be really alert and sensitive around our sexual relations and be really sensitive and alert around the words we speak to ourselves and to others and where we're choosing not to speak maybe where we might it might be good to say something and then the last training is you know to bring that sensitivity around the different ways we like to intoxicate the mind to trip to dull out to disappear tranquilize in a non samadhi way (laughs) the mind right like get me out of here so we can do that with media we can do that with drugs and alcohol there's probably other ways we can intoxicate the mind and the thing is that might make sense if there was a way of escaping these wounds and unresolved pain that we carry along, and the potential to do more. But there isn't. The Buddha was really clear about that, and we can check that out ourselves. We do, it is possible to escape temporarily, to take vacations, right? But we always come back. I think I shared, maybe not this course, but one of my great discoveries around this, uh, this is in the early 90s after Wynn and I had moved to Minneapolis and we'd go see a movie and after it took a while but eventually with some help from my beloved spouse I really started to notice how irritable I was after seeing a movie and that it really didn't have anything to do with the movie. But and what it was was I got intoxicated by the movie and for someone who was, you know, sensitive to life as it is to some degree, it was really nice to have a break. But then the movie ended and there it was. Life was waiting. This mind, this personality, these, this unresolved pain, these, you know, grooves that my relationships were in, you know, these, this way of relating to this person and this groove of relating to that person, Mark showed back up after the movie. I was like, oh. (laughs) And and it was so good to see that. Oh, this is the problem with intoxicants. It's not like having a drink is bad. This is even sort of spelled out in the Buddhist tradition. Intoxicants aren't in and of themselves a cause for harm. The problem is, it's not in the direction of awakening. What's in the direction of awakening is sensitivity. Now, it doesn't mean, I mean, I still have my intoxicants. I'm not proud of them. You know, I don't drink and I don't use drugs. But I do use media in ways that aren't completely healthy, for sure. And uh, so I try to feel what that feels like when i'm going to the news or going to something to intoxicate my mind to get away to escape only to find myself back or use food even like wholesome food i'll make some soup and i'll keep eating it <laughs> you know because i'm not eating the soup because i need soup i'm eating the soup because i want escape and what we, all, what we human beings need to do is see that desire for escape and gently, carefully, wisely use that energy towards awakening because that's the one escape. It's actually a wholesome wish to want to escape the dissatisfaction The uneasiness, existential uneasiness that comes with being a human being. It's it's actually a sign of wisdom. What's interesting is what do we do with that? To the degree we're sensitive to that uneasiness, what do we do with it? And what the Buddha is saying in that passage I read a few moments ago, we should take the three medicines that are available. Take as much of the samadhi as you need, take as much of the moral integrity that you need, and take as much of the wisdom that you need. And there's always more, right? That, imagine like a deeper understanding, a deeper experience of samadhi, settledness, harmonizing the mind. It's like some Sometimes I think about samadhi as a, you know, when a garden has been cultivated and the soil is really good and the moisture is really good and the placement, the light. And there's just such a, excuse me, such a, like in any ecosystem that has a lot of balance to it, we see that as a real beauty. And then when the balance gets disturbed, you know, something is out of balance, then it it strikes us as being off even though it's all nature, even when it's out of balance. But you know what I mean? Like when something has a just a real harmonized feeling to it, oh, it feels good to be around. That's samadhi. So let's move to um, wise speech, this fourth training. And as I mentioned earlier... The Buddha talks about wise speech in four ways, uh, refraining from falsehoods. So it's this uh, deep and resonant commitment to truthfulness, non-deception, internally, externally. And then understanding that words have power. One thing that Sylvia Borstein does is, you know, when she's teaching wise speech, she'll ask the crowd like, It's something like, she'll go, anybody ever break a bone? You know, a lot of people raise their hand. Anybody still hurting from the bone that was broken? And a lot, most of the hands go down, right, because the bones have healed. And then she'll say, anybody been really hurt by somebody's words? Everyone raises their hand. Anybody still feeling pain from words that were spoken one year ago? Most people probably have their hands up five years ago. 20 years ago there are probably people in this room that we still feel some sting from words spoken 50 60 70 years ago words have real power to cause harm they are a weapon they can be used for sure as a weapon right so this is the second aspect of why speech is just to understand <clears throat> that we can use words for healing or we can use words to cause destruction. And we refrain from using words to cause destruction. But the Buddha was really clear with that second training that there are times we're going to say things that are hurtful. They may be true. It may be ultimately beneficial for the person, but it might be hurtful. And there's an interesting story with one of the princes at the time of the Buddha, who was aligned with some other spiritual teachers who were very competitive with the Buddha. And they wanted to get the Buddha stuck in the horn, horns of a dilemma, whatever that phrase is. And so they conspired to kind of trap the Buddha. So this prince, the Buddha was being fed by the prince and they then have a dharma conversation, usually after the meal is served to the monks and nuns. And the, this prince asked the Buddha, and he had already sort of devised how to trap the Buddha. Um, "Isn't it true?" says to the Buddha, something like, "Isn't it true that you advocate, you know, this deep valuing of non-harming?" The Buddha, "Yes, that's true." Um, and then the so he's, "Oh, I got him." Isn't it true that uh, you shouldn't say something that causes harm? Because he had, he was a sort of evil cousin of the Buddhas, Devadatta, who uh, was really jealous and had some real psychic samadhi, right? He had some psychic abilities, he was charismatic, and he was uh, out to sort of take over the sangha, the monastic sangha, to be the leader. And so, uh, but the Buddha had kind of put him in his place and said something like, your actions, your words, are gonna set in motion a lot of suffering for you. I forget exactly how he said it, you know, you'll be reborn in a hell realm or something like that. I mean, who knows how these things have been passed down. But basically what he said was, when you do this, this is what could set in motion to his cousin. And uh, so the prince was sort of pointing out to the Buddha that he said something that was hurtful. And the Buddha said, well, it's not so simple as that. And then he gave this example, because the prince had a young child there on his lap. If your kid got a twig or a stone caught back in the, far back in their mouth, what would you do? And the prince said, well, I'd stick my finger in there and I'd pull it out even if it was hurtful. The Buddha, you know, you get the point. We said just so you know, sometimes you speak the truth, it's beneficial, but it's gonna hurt. And when you when we look at how the Buddha says like there's basically two times you can say something to somebody. It has to be true. It has to be beneficial. But it could either be pleasing for the person to hear, or it could be painful for the person to hear. But in either case, you find the right way, the right time and place to tell the person. What would be, because you want it to be beneficial for the person, or for maybe all around. Maybe it's beneficial for you. You need to say that in order for the relationship to have some integrity. But in any case, clearly, there are times when we have to say things that hurt other people or cause pain to other people. And to not do that would cause more harm to avoid it. And some of us are just looking for places to tell people things that are hurtful. And other of us, and so we need to kind of like, is this the right time? Is this really beneficial to tell this person this? I don't know about you and your sort of good friendships or partnerships, but it's just interesting when people have personalities like mine, you know, it seems so clear sometimes that, oh, I need to say this to my partner. And uh, it's just useful for people like, with that tendency with, that I have, to, to learn, I'm still learning, <laughs> to learn... Like, is this, do I need to be the one to say this? Does it have to be said? Is it actually beneficial for me to say this? Because we might be seeing something clearly. I mean, maybe, maybe not. But let's just presume we're seeing something clearly. But just because something is true doesn't mean it's beneficial to say something about it. And that's a for people who have that more aversive, critical kind of personality, which, you know, we have to have some kind of personality, <laughs> and, and the three choices are a greedy type, a diluted type, or an aversive type, so it's not like one's better than another. That's just generally what we're born with, you know, to, to a greater or lesser degree. We're not all the same, of course. But if we are that aversive type, it's an important lesson to appreciate the discriminating clarity, like seeing what's off. But that doesn't mean anything should be done about it. And it's like, it's like such good training for me to see something that's off and just living with it. Okay, that needs to be fixed. I could be the one who's going to get involved with taking care of that problem. But I'm not sure I should be the one so I'm going to, first of all, like, if I can't stand it being unresolved, then I won't have any clarity about whether I'm the right person and I can find the right way and the right time to say something. First, I have to make peace with this problem being the way it is, unresolved, or this issue that's prickly for me, being unfixed. I have to learn to be at ease with it. And then when I'm at ease with it, then I might have some clarity whether I'm the one to say it, whether there's actually a time and a way and a place to say it so that it's both true and beneficial for all concerned. And the other point here in terms of, you know, how we use our words is we want to, again, use our imagination that there's a way to either say something or not say something that's really for everyone's well-being. Because a lot of times we give ourselves this, we we believe this truth, we believe this to be true when it may not be true, which is I have to choose between my well-being and that other person or that group over there, their well-being, as if it's one or the other. And just in terms of our moral, our training and moral sensitivity, we might want to presume both with our words but also our thoughts and actions that there's a way to show up with our speech, our silence, with our actions or non-actions, with our thoughts or not thoughts. There's a way to be engaged that's for everyone's well-being, And there's a way to be engaged, to act, that is harming all around. And that really makes us, that helps the interest. So just to summarize this around speech, so if something is, it's interesting, the Buddha doesn't even mention the possibility of something that's not true but beneficial. Right? It's like that's not even conceivable to the Buddha. So he doesn't even bring that up. So there's things that are not true and not beneficial and maybe pleasant. You don't do that. Right? Or things that are true but not beneficial, pleasant or unpleasant, you don't do that. So it's only like in terms of our conversation, boy, this is gonna limit a lot of what we say, right? It needs to be true, it needs to be felt as being beneficial all around. Like, it's healing. We're healing something. And to think about our words as a kind of medicine. And sometimes silence is the right medicine and sometimes speaking, saying something, is the right medicine. And we won't, obviously, always get it right or even often get it right but we want to be in this place where, yeah, words, it's like money, it's an energy. And money can be used in ways that are very abusive, but money can be used to really take care of people. And it's the same, words are energy too, a precious resource. And how can we use, how can my words be healing? Does anything need to be said? Or as Sylvia Borstein says, is anything an improvement on silence? <laughs> Joseph Goldstein tells the story of, I don't know if it was for one month or for three months, but he made this strong resolve not to talk about anybody who wasn't there, not, not to gossip for a month at least. Maybe it was a little longer. And he said, it just eliminated so much speech. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine so much of what we talk about is somebody who's not there. And it can, some, it can seem like we're not actually insulting the person. But it's really good to... I mean, you may uh, continue to talk about someone who's not there. But you might want to entertain the question... This, I think, came from Steve Armstrong. Would I be willing to say that if the person were here? How would I need to change how I'm saying it? And just because the whole point of this training in sila is to illuminate so we can sense the karmic impression that's being laid down. Because otherwise, you know, we just get swept away this is the trouble with intoxicants. And one of the intoxicants we don't talk about so much, but it's just that energy of exuberance. You know how it is. I mean, we even do it with our pets. Oh! You know, and we're kind of delighting in the energy or with a friend. Or, and there can be this sort of hyped up energy and it, and it can get in the way of actually sensing the karmic impressions of how I'm relating, what I'm thinking, what I'm saying, and what I'm doing. Because we're intoxicated by the whipped up emotional energy that we collectively have whipped up. And that's why we like to go to clubs and you know parties, because it's like we've all conspired in those in a lot of those social settings to whip up energy, you know, we have balloons. We have music, we have, you know, intoxicants. We have permission to talk about, to be silly, you know, we all have our kind of party shtick, whatever it is. Some people it's being sarcastic, other people, you know, whatever it is. You know, ways of being funny. And uh, so, but... (laughs) if we're really interested in these healing medicines of the Dharma, then we're a little bit more careful about situations where we can't maintain that sensitivity, because we really value it. I mean, I noticed this, like I don't like to go to bars, I mean partly because I don't drink, but just the energy in bars, it's like not conducive to Being grounded, and I really appreciate being grounded. And sometimes I'll have, like, um, my partner sometimes will drink, have a drink, and I'll t- taste the, the wine, I'll have a sip. And because I don't drink, I can really sense the uh, even just one swallow. And I and it's like I, I like the feeling, I definitely like to get high <laughs> in, all, in all ways, so I like that. But then I notice kind of the desensitization that comes with intoxicants. And I definitely notice it with media, and I notice it in diff- different environments, social environments. Even here at Common Ground, where there's a big crowd and we're just chatting after a program or after retreats, Buddhist retreats, there's a lot of that energy, and it's like, I want to run. <laughs> now that's aversion. And I know it's aversion. And I aspire to being the person who doesn't lose grounding in those situations. I think that's a beautiful aspiration. I'm just not there yet. But I do aspire to be there, and I'm better in those situations. So we don't want to just always avoid them, especially when it's hurtful avoiding those situations. My wonderful older sister just added, her 50th wedding anniversary, wonderful event, super spreader event. (laughs) It was fun. And lots of love and good energy there. But it's, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but it's like, totally, I'm going to be there. And and when you're going to be somewhere like there, it's not helpful to be there grumpily. You know, it's like, if you're going to do something, it only really makes sense to to do it all in, and uh, to get, you know, in the spirit of it, but to then sense, okay, this is what's left over. I felt spun out after that. I mean, we had our family reunion over five days, for me it was a lot more socializing than I normally do, and it was just interesting to kind of see the effects, and like, secluding myself is only going to be a temporary uh, measure. So, we really want to take advantage of those places where we are interacting with other human beings, so we can learn to be free and unhindered and not disturbed. Because who knows what's down the road for us. You know, you might end up, only job available is working a bar, at a really successful bar. I did that once for almost a year back in the day. So, uh, a few other things I wanted to say about wise speech. So, we talked about this commitment to truthfulness and non-deception. And, you know, it's said, like around this particular training, you know, just mythologically, the Buddha who you know, as they tell this story, the Buddha lived countless lives developing the kind of mental hard qualities that would allow him to be a Buddha, to wake up and to be able to teach in such a powerful way. And it's said that in, through all those incalculable lifetimes, he broke the precepts, but never the precept around speaking falsehoods. Now, just even mythologically, that's an interesting teaching. You can kill, you know, steal, but you don't lie. And the, the teaching point here is that the whole path is about truthfulness. And uh, in Sylvia's book, uh, Pay Attention for Goodness' Sake, her book on the Paramis, it's a wonderful book if you want to track it down someday. Sylvia Borstein is one of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock, one of our elders in our insight meditation lineage here in the West. And uh, she has this, uh, what did she say about truthfulness? (laughs) Oh, Oh, I just lost it again. But the the thing about this, uh, this commitment to truthfulness, it's like everything we're doing, oh yeah, now I'm remembering, she says like even in our sitting practice, we're trying to be, I mean sometimes we're speaking to ourselves, a lot of the times probably we're not, but in any case, that inner narration, whether it's with words or just with understanding, You know, the awareness, being aware of the way it is. It's all about the integrity of truthfulness, that commitment, like being in alignment with the truth. Oh yeah, this is what's being known, hearing a sound is being known. And there's the whole point of building the momentum of present moment awareness is that requires that integrity of truthfulness of uh, the knowing mind connecting. So for this reason, this is a, it's an important training, not even to shade in subtle ways. And when we do shade the truth or don't tell the whole truth in order to, for some reason of self-importance or don't want to feel bad about something, it should feel off. I'll just give a small example of, this is a long time ago. I. I lived at a meditation yoga center, a real spiritual center. We sat three times a day in New York City, right in Manhattan, the Integral Yoga Institute. And uh, back at the time, you know, no no cell phones back then, and uh, you'd make collect calls, but it was expensive to do collect calls. So there was this system between the different centers. Uh, that you'd find out if the person was there, and if the person was there, then you'd make the the direct call. You wouldn't do a collect call where the operator asks. So it it involved a little deception, or a lot of deception, depending on your moral sensitivity. And I felt uncomfortable with that. It's like, and it was just the habit of the organization to kind of cheat Ma Bell, AT&T at the time, right? That... I had a monopoly on the phone business, um, just cheating them a little bit by uh, manipulating the operator to ask for somebody we know isn't there, but that way it was, I forget what, how it all worked, but we could find out if the person we wanted to talk to was there and then we could call direct, which didn't cost as much per minute. It's just that, like, how many little ways do we rationalize not speaking the whole truth, or not saying something when we should speak the truth. And can we get familiar with what that feels like, what's getting laid down? You know, like you're having a conversation with your partner or good friend, or those of you with children, one of your kids, adult kids or young kids, and they ask a question and you shade the truth because it's embarrassing or something. And then, what does that feel like? As opposed to saying, I don't feel comfortable talking about this, sorry. You know, which would at least be true. And are we interested in this truthfulness to the nth degree? Or do we feel like that's going to be a real problem in my business life, in my romantic life, in my social life and my family life. Like do we need it? I mean, and especially these days in our wider culture, you know, I think it was probably always bad, but it for whatever reasons, it seems worse now. You know, just how words, how language, speech is used, manipulated. And it's scary. You know there is just so much deceit and after a while there's really less and less ground that the community stands on shared ground and it feels I think it should feel like we're on shaky ground because people seem to be willing people with power seem to be willing to say whatever they want to say without having to be thoughtful without having to make amends when they've been shown to be wrong. You just double down. And it's, I don't think this is a political point. I may sound political, but I, it feels like it's a lot of places, not just in politics. And you know, it's always been that way in the kind of corporate world, the world of business. You know, you say what you can get away with, what are we doing in our lives, and can we really appreciate that in each other? Like when somebody has that integrity around their speech, you know, can we acknowledge that and appreciate that? I mean, we do that with kids, you know, those of you who are parents or teachers, you know, when a child really does the difficult thing and comes clear with, you know, says, speaks the truth about something that's hard to say, you know, there still may be consequences, but hopefully we appreciate their integrity to truthfulness. Oh yeah, it's really good. It's really good that you could say that to me or with our partners and friends. I'm really glad you told me that. It felt off. I didn't know why Now I get why that felt off. I'm really glad that you said that. It hurts that you said that. But I'm really happy that you said that. Because it's a way of saying to each other, yeah, truthfulness is really important. And this is one of those places where it can be good to scare ourselves a little bit. Like the Buddha does with his son. There's a famous place in the suttas where the Buddha tells his son who who had ordained, he was a novice monk, like at seven or eight years of age, and a, sh- a year or so after he'd become this novice monk as a kid, he gave his son this teaching, you know, never tell a deliberate lie, even for fun. And I'm guilty of this. I like to tease, you know, and uh, yeah, just to sort of, that sort of teasing way of, saying something that's not true to be funny and uh but the buddha was very clear don't do that because if if you can you we might you know saying to us you might not appreciate how important this value of truthfulness is we shouldn't play around with it and i i had this kind of Shown to me when I was practicing in Thailand at a monastery a ways back, and I forget that I think one of the senior monks just asked me if I wanted a drink because they get offered drinks in the afternoon. you have your main meal before noon, and then uh, there's sometimes sweet drinks in the afternoon and i I said something this is that exuberance I said something like. I forget the words, but maybe something like, oh, that, that would be wonderful. Oh, that'd be great. You know, something like that. But probably with a little exuberance. Because, you know, we're practicing in silence. Somebody talks to you. Somebody offers you a sweet drink. You know, a senior person, just a lay person practicing there. And then, but he, then he kind of scolded me around, like, uh, is it really wonderful? It's, it's just, you know, it's like, it's like he, he picked up. It was a little off, you know, because in the in the monastic etiquette, you just say what's true. It's in this sort of simplistic, grounded way. You don't let your words kind of get swept away by emotion. If there's emotion, you're not repressing it. You just recognize, oh, I'm feeling. So, please, somebody's offering me a drink, you know. Yes, I would like a drink. (laughs) But it was really, it didn't feel off to me. It certainly wouldn't be off in kind of our ordinary social settings. But it's a different vibe that they're training with. And it's good for us to know that, like to just play with that practice of just saying what we mean just in a straightforward, simple way, just say what we mean. It doesn't have to be decorated or ornate or whipped up in any way. We can just say what we mean. So the again, the four trainings under this fourth precept, refraining from deception or falsehoods, retraining from slander, retraining, uh, training, refraining, sorry, from harsh language, sort of tripping on the power, loudness, swearing, just being sort of blunt in a way that's not helpful. Sometimes, you know, being blunt can be, it's maybe necessary to kind of get somebody's attention. But sometimes we're blunt because it's like a power move. And I notice this a lot, and maybe it's part of it is just uh, my male conditioning but you know where it's more socially acceptable and we've been conditioned I've been conditioned as male to use language in that way like how you know even the, the uh, loudness of my voice and uh, yeah just that, like well what's that about what's the motivation or the intention behind my body language, behind my choice of words. And why can't my words uh, be, like why can't I be valuing um, like speaking in a way that's harmonizing and pleasing? And even if I have to say something that's hard for someone to hear, I might be able to say that in a gentle, loving, non-harsh way. So it's not that harshness is never, or loudness is never appropriate, but we want to be interested in the motivation whenever there's some power for whatever reason, the choice of words, the volume, the affect. What's that about? And then the last is just around idle speech. And you'll have time next week, week eight, the last week of the course, in the small groups, the probably really rich conversations about this week really resolving to be interested in speech. What is it laying down? What's the reverberation? What was the motivation? And idle speech is a really good place. Like just, maybe just in one, relationship or one place in your life, just practice refraining from idle speech. The Buddha considers politics mostly idle speech, you know, cars, vehicles, food, all the things we talk about would be not worthy of conversation. What is worthy of conversation is thoughts and words about contentment, of course about the practice, That's what you talk about. Suffering and the end of suffering. Those are good words. Feel free to engage in those kind of conversations. I mean, I think uh, maybe Wynne would agree, but I think my relationship with Wynne, my 30 years of living, more than 30 years of living with Wynne and 29 years of marriage, the real glue is our Dharma conversations. I mean, we get along, we have a lot of shared interests, but it's so nice You know, to be able to talk about Dharma, about our practice, about suffering and the end of suffering with another wonderful, wonderfully sincere practitioner. It's just such an important part of my life. And so it doesn't mean you're actually using Buddhist words or that the other person practices Buddhism. It's just about like what's really important, which is suffering and the end of suffering. And you're, you'll find ways to kind of have that conversation without sounding like a weird Buddhist trying to convert someone because nobody wants that, (laughs) trust me. (laughs) So I wish you all well with this practice and of course it isn't just for a week, it's really wise speech and undertaking this training, really getting interested in these four things, idle speech, speech as a weapon, subtle or not so subtle, Harsh speech, using, getting, uh, indulging in the power of speech is really what I think is meant by harsh speech and around deception and truthfulness. So those four categories, just ways to highlight this whole huge part of our life. Because even when we're not around people, we're talking to ourselves, that inner dialogue. And would it be interesting to take a look at that? Like how we're talking to ourselves harsh or not loving or not so wishing everyone a good week of practice and uh, let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words